You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. This week, we're cross-publishing an episode of the O'Reilly Design Podcast, which you can also find on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. O'Reilly's Mary Tressler chats with Amy Elliott, Design Director at Simply Secure. They talk about security and privacy design with a focus on the end-user experience and how to give designers a voice in changing the shape of a product and getting the right values out in the world. Amy also talks about how architecture inspires her work and why problem finding is a better approach than problem solving. Enjoy the episode. Hello, this is Mary Tressler. Today I'm here with Amy Elliott, who is a designer working at Simply Secure. Amy, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I'd like to start off with just letting people know a little bit about your background and what you're currently doing at Simply Secure. Okay. Well, I am the design director at Simply Secure. We are a new nonprofit that focuses on uh, data security and privacy. Been uh, at Simply Secure a couple of months. And uh, prior to that, I was at IDEO in San Francisco for uh, eight years. IDEO is a global design consultancy, and I worked as a, a project lead and design researcher. And uh, before that, I was a a research scientist. I worked at uh, PARC in the Ubiquitous Computing Group and at Rico Innovations in their shared media group. Neat. Okay, great. I was reading up on you. It's interesting to hear about your educational background, that you went to architecture school. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you feel that's informed your work as a designer. Absolutely. So I um, discovered computing in 1993 as part of my undergrad thesis. And um, in 1993, we weren't calling it interaction design. We were calling it human-computer interaction. Um, And at the time, um, I wanted to save the rainforest. So I was doing a lot of um, work on things like remote mapping, using um, GIS systems and uh, remote sensing. And all of uh, the systems at the time had uh, these command lines interfaces, so kind of like an array of SunSpark stations, and it was very much um, no user interface or very minimal user interface. Mm -hmm. And I had a belief that if people could actually manipulate this data for themselves, and if there was some kind of graphical user interface to support group decision-making around the environment, that we would end up in a, a different place. So, I mean, I think that, that architecture school, uh, which is where I ended up for, for graduate school as well, uh, I have a, a PhD um, in design theory and methods. Um, again, you know, central to that work was, was human-computer interaction. But the flavor that you get when going to architecture school is, I think, kind of interesting. And a couple of the things that I think were really central to that was natural observations of people. Hmm. So, for example, like William H. White and the social life of small urban spaces, really kind of important work about doing naturalistic observations of how people use spaces like like plazas. And that kind of looking at natural behavior put me on um, a very kind of logical path to doing user research and, and, and design research later. So that's certainly one thing that I would flag. Mm, that is interesting. Um, there seems to be so much talk about user research right now. It, you know, not as if it's anything new, but I think with the emergence of IoT and other things, there seems to be a new emphasis on it. So that's a that's an interesting. It makes sense now that I kind of see your career path. Um, in, in particular, IDEO. That's. Um, I would imagine that maybe perhaps there are are there other um, folks that are in your shoes that are designers that came from architecture, or do you is that a, a rarity? Do you think? I don't think it's a rarity. I mean, I think architecture can be a, a wonderful form of a design-inspired liberal arts education. Mm-hmm. And if you look at places like Italy, 
Uh, I think that there, there are certainly ways that you can go to architecture school and, and not be set up to practice architecture. Mm-hmm. But the, the studio experience of actually being together in this communal space, working at a drafting table, making things visual. I mean, it's so kind of foundational to a lot of the things that are called design thinking today. Mm-hmm. And I, I even see a lot of overlap with a lot of the, the lean startup kinds of methodology around just building the think and, and launching and learning and the ways in which which architecture students are, are taught to to draw by uh, tracing over something that comes um, before them and small group critiques. And, and it, it's a really kind of social collaborative experience mm-hmm. and uh, the collaborative and, and social elements of, of architecture school, I think, were, were great. That's a great observation. Um, you mentioned in a, and I don't know how old this blog post is, but I feel it's fairly recent, a blog post about architecture school teaching problem finding rather than problem solving. And I found that an interesting um, phrase. I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit about what you mean by that. Well, sure. I mean, I think that part of that is, is temperamental. I mean, I went to school at, at UC Berkeley, and at the time, there was a bunch of rhetoric around how, oh, you know, at, at MIT, they're the problem answerers, and at Berkeley, we're the problem questioners. <laughs> and I, mean, I think there's hints of that that are that are true, but but you know, beyond just the kind of glib comments, I think that. What makes architecture interesting are some properties of um, what are called wicked problems. So like Horst Riddle, also in the architecture department at, at UC Berkeley as a professor before my time, had a, a whole lot of things to say about why defining the problem is is really congruent with solving it. And, and what that means is by the time you completely uh, write an exhaustive functional specification for something, you're describing the solution in such a way that it kind of makes a a universe of of one. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of really great thinking around, um, you know, in the the built environment, like no one has put a building on this particular site. This design problem is a universe of one. And I think that there's a bunch of systematic things around ways in which knowledge is reused versus what's specific and particular to this problem that, that's, that's really pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. So by, by problem finding, I mean that it's less about coming up with a right answer and more about um, bringing multiple voices into the question. Let's work together as a group to find a, a problem and define the problem and, um, and then work together on making that better. That's, that's great. That's, that's interesting because I imagine there's oftentimes in, in design work or anywhere where people maybe misunderstand what the problem is. And so learning that skill in terms of really being able to dig in would be central to anything else that you do. You know, it's a, a kind of a cliche, but one of the, the, the things around architecture school is, is a, a couple comes to an architect and says they want to put an addition on their house because their house isn't big enough. They, they don't need a bigger house. They need a divorce. Like the reason that their house isn't big enough is they just can't live together under the same roof. And I, I think that, you know, marriage counseling aside, there's a lot in, in learning client management and a lot in managing conflicting stakeholders that translates really well to the kind of design that I've practiced, which has been you know, very much focused on, um, on tech development. I mean, more software than hardware, but definitely with some elements of, of hardware as well. Mm-hmm. That is fantastic. It's, it's the question of what's really going on here. Um, 
Interesting. So you mentioned earlier design thinking. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you've seen design thinking change in organizations' culture. Sure. I mean, I feel really lucky that during my time at, at IDEO, I was able to learn from a lot of great people around um, how to support and enable cultural change in an organization. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the times that I saw this really clearly was in um, a project that I worked on for the Apollo Group. And, and we worked together to put out the Innovators Accelerator, which is an, an online course for teaching innovation. And um, you know, there's some some really great content in there from people like Clayton Christensen and, and others. And, and the way that design thinking came into this is we were helping our clients build completely new muscles by using an agile development process to get this website out into the world. Mm-hmm. And what that meant in practice was we had senior business leaders making business critical decisions from looking at wireframes. And a wireframe was just not an artifact that they had looked at before. Mm-hmm. And they got much better at it over time. And when I think about the kinds of skills that the, 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 the clients who were just lovely people built up over time around embracing ambiguity and making decisions with incomplete information and, and being able to uh, look at these very abstract representations and see what might have been. Mm-hmm. I think it's great to think about how that carries over into other aspects of, of their leadership and other aspects of their decision making. Hmm. So how has that work, um, you know, that you, you did at IDEO, has it impacted your work that you're doing at Simply Secure? And, and if so, how? Oh, definitely. I mean, IDEO is so strong on culture. I feel like I've learned a ton being there. I mean, I think that everything from brainstorming rules to just being really clear on, on values. Um, I've already mentioned that embracing ambiguity is something that I, you know, take as, as a, ma- a mandate and am also kind of working to foster in the, the relationships that, that we're building at Simply Secure. And then being explicitly collaborative, I think, has has shaped me um, in some pretty clear ways, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I could also go further back in my background when I was a, a research scientist. Mm-hmm. I mean, collaboration is, is really important. And the same impulse that drew me to some abstract technical topics like image processing and machine learning, it, it's the same impulse that draws me to, to security and, and privacy. And I, I see there being a really exciting tension between technical depth and, and user experience and how you get the right team together to move forward. Mm, I can imagine. Okay. Well, how, well, let me talk a little bit more about privacy and security. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think the tougher challenge is, addressing privacy or security, or maybe just talk a bit about both. So I don't think it's a question of a, a tougher challenge. Privacy and security are, are tightly interrelated. Privacy or confidentiality is is one technical goal of security. There are other technical goals of security, integrity, non-repeatability, and other kinds of things. But coming at this from a human-centered design perspective, you know, I'm a UX designer. I care about what end users experience. And privacy feels like the quality that people are looking for in an interaction. But it's less about what's tougher. There's you know, plenty of tough to go around. Really what I'd like to see is designers working together with some of the fantastically talented cryptographers to make security usable and delightful so that end users can experience privacy. And in order to do that, 
there's a real need to help users understand how privacy and security aren't necessarily the same. And there can be opportunities for new interactions, new product messages to make it clear to end users who is accessing their data and, you know, to what purpose. That could be everything from privacy being a feature that um, a cloud service company promotes to um, a a secure system for end-to-end encryption in a, a messaging application, for example. Mm. Well, it's it's an interesting observation. They they've never. Um, I don't think those, you know, user experience and privacy and security have always been things that people talk about hand in hand. It's sort of a trade off, right? Um, I mean, yes, I, I, there is some language around it being a, a trade off, but I think the the challenge in some senses is a user experience challenge. And mm-hmm. right now, many users think that privacy and security are the same. And the interactions that they have and the, the product messages that they get just don't clarify how their data can or can't be accessed and by whom. And what I would like to, to see is a new class of interfaces that give people confidence and give people power in how their data is, is accessed and used. Interesting. Okay, great. Um, you know, you mentioned security and privacy. What are some of the other... Um skills or, you know, what are some of the areas or topics that you think designers really need to learn today? I I think for skills, I mean, empathy, ability to collaborate, um, being able to, uh, to just brainstorm and create a lot of things. So in, in ideal parlance, we call that go for quantity. I think, um, being able to generate a lot of ideas and put them out to a group for discussion is a, a really important skill. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's true no matter what area that you're working on. I mean, right now at Simply Secure, we're um, choosing to partner with open source development efforts. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of things that are um, that are special or, or different or exciting about open source. And I think that designers who take a, a human-centered approach can benefit by being empathetic with their partners and empathetic towards the other people in their efforts, where it's not just a matter of how can you understand the needs and priorities of end users, but how can you understand the needs and and priorities of the the teams that you're working with so that you can come together towards a common goal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, what products or people are you are on your radar right now? Who, you know, beyond your own work, what kind of work is interesting to you? Well, um, the, the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, has um, a scorecard out right now around secure messaging. And I, I think that that's pretty interesting. There's um, some tools on there that I think are, are very rightly being called out and celebrated. Like, for example, the Signal iOS app, which has been even recommended. Uh, Laura Poitras of Citizen Corps was suggesting that it was useful in the, the Wall Street Journal. Mm. Um, I have a ton of respect for the stuff that uh, the Open Whisper Systems team are doing. They're also you know, integrating into WhatsApp. And um, I think I'm also just excited about mass market tools. I mean, Apple's iMessage is doing some really interesting things. And uh, I mean, the, the hope that, that I would see is that we could come up with um, solutions that are globally inclusive and can give um, just a huge mass of people worldwide the um, ability to communicate securely and privately. Interesting. Okay. I'll have to check these out. Um, what advice for designers listening um, that, are, that are looking to make a larger impact on their organizations, what advice would you give, give these folks? I mean... I think that, you know, 
figuring out ways to work in a multidisciplinary team is really important. And I think doing a human-centered design process on your team is a good way to get there. And that includes empathy for others' priorities. And that can include doing some of the activities that you might traditionally associate with user research with um, you know, customers um, as activities with other people on your team, just to be clear about um, the values, the motivating factors and, and expectations that, that people have. And you know, I think that Globally, there's a really interesting opportunity for design leadership and a, a new kind of or emerging group of design leaders to move up the ranks of, of their organizations and, and really be um, a voice for design and, and a voice for positive impact. Mm, so true. We're seeing that all over the place in interesting industries you wouldn't imagine, right? Um, you know, from banking to to healthcare and so on. Um Absolutely. I mean, I think that I mean, I've learned a lot from successes in, in healthcare and in banking and, and making information that was previously seen as complex or off-putting or you know too technical or not relevant to the end users in their daily lives, mm-hmm. um, accessible and exciting and, and actionable. And, and the thing that unlocked that change was design. So I um, am optimistic about the role that design can play in some um, similar systematic challenges like those of security and, and, and privacy and make those accessible and actionable to a mass audience. Mm, absolutely. Which which leads me to my, my final question, which is sort of a broad and weird one. But <laughs> um, I'd love to hear just your viewpoint on the responsibility of design and designers. And I, I mentioned this question because when having a lot of conversation around what this means. And I'd love to hear from your viewpoint with security and privacy, how you view this. So um, one of the the things that really influenced me kind of in my journey towards working on security and and privacy was, um, you know, Mike Montero gave a talk at Webstock in um, 2013 called How Designers Are Destroying the World. (laughs) And um, I mean, it's a provocative title, but I think it was pretty eye-opening for me to just know, see how he uh, used an example of um, ways in which uh, the users of Facebook can make decisions that have drastic real world consequences to people's lives. And that was pretty eye opening to me to think, hey, you know, these aren't just pixels on a screen, you know, there are people behind these systems and where designers um, are making questionable choices, there can be drastic consequences. Hmm. Surely, you know, I see this now in a simply secure context where we're looking at things like human rights violations and globally everything from you know, groups that are working to report um, evidence of, uh, you know, atrocities and sexual violence to the International Criminal Court mm-hmm. and, you know, all the way down to I don't know, activists and journalists who are uh, trying to make sure that their communications are protected so that they can just participate in some of the, the, the systems that help people get information about the world around them. But, you know, beyond that, I think designers do have a responsibility. Like a user experience is, is critical. And I think that design leadership is the, the piece for unlocking that so that designers feel that they really have a, a voice and, and agency in, in changing the shape of a product and uh, getting the right values out in the world. Hmm. That's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much for making time today, Amy. Well, thank you. You can find Amy on Twitter at Amy Elio. That's A-M-E 
E-L-L-I-O. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Radar podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. (laughs) 